Hey guys, I'm here. Just wanted to let you know that my novel Dionysus in Wisconsin is now available for pre-order on the Kindle. I'll put an Amazon link in the show notes. If you like urban fantasy or historical romance set in the late 60s, you should go order it. It's going to be awesome. If you prefer paperback or you want to get it from somewhere other than Amazon, add it on Goodreads and stay tuned. Also, I'd like to warn you that the following episode is on obscenity. I don't think we actually use all that much bad language, but we do refer to anatomy by its proper Latin terms. We talk about banned books a lot and probably some other stuff that's going to be offensive if you try hard. So, caveat audiat, I believe is how we would say it. Let the listener beware. Enjoy the episode and keep it medieval. Veni, veni, venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So tonight, we're going to talk about something that people have said, I know it when I see it. Uh, one Supreme Court-based test is, in order to be proven to be this thing, it has to be appealing to prurient interests, be patently offensive, and have no redeeming social value. Uh, if you guessed we're going to talk about obscenity, you're totally right. So uh, cover your children's ears, or um, <laughs> maybe wait till nap time to put this one on, and sit back and enjoy. Yes, not safe for work, Yeah, as they say. <laughs> we've, got, we've got phallus trees, we've got Sheila Nagig, yep. we've got uh, probably many yeah. uh, words that we should not be saying in front of young, impressionable people. Right. Um, and this will probably be a two-parter. So today is probably mostly genitalia. And then we'll talk about other forms of obscenity next yes. time. <laughs> um, but there's so much. Um, and it's worth pointing out, this episode is partially inspired by recent events, um, one of which is the fact that this year, which is 2021, um, has seen more attempted book bannings than usual, um, significantly more, um, including mm -hmm. in Spotsylvania County, which is just north of me in Richmond. Um, and in fact, at this taping, about a week ago, they voted... They, the county school board, voted of Spotsylvania, sorry, voted to um, ban several books that had been challenged, and two people suggested burning them, although they later claimed they were joking. Um, and then a few days ago, <laughs> so about a week, maybe not even an actual week later, they came back and voted again to unban them, because, of course, the schools all have... Um, you know, various ways for parents to challenge books if they want to for that specific school. Um, and that is supposed to happen before the school board as a whole takes a vote for the district as a whole. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. basic, but basically what happened is it's not so much that they didn't know that that existed. It's that they seem to have decided to test the waters. They got so much flack and pushback that they quickly undid it. 
and sort of claimed that they hadn't known that other means existed for challenges. So now it gets oh tossed back to the schools. So if a parent of a student challenges a book at their school, then, you know, there's supposed to be a hearing and such. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the books was The Bluest Eye. Um, okay, Toni Morrison. I will say in somewhat fairness, one of them, I think, was Lolita. <laughs> at the same time, that doesn't mean Lolita, of course, should be banned, although it famously has been. Um, mm-hmm. It does mean, of course, that, you know, like juniors and seniors read it with warnings if, you know, they're prepared for it by their teacher and probably like the freshmen and the sophomores maybe don't read it. But um, the point, of course, of a library, as some of the librarians themselves pointed out, is that it's supposed to be accessible. We, of course, have had episodes on libraries. Um, yeah. Right? They're supposed to be accessible to people who want them. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they have lots of things available to all the sorts of people who might want to come to the library. And different people are going to want different things. So the library has to be accessible to all of them. <laughs> it cannot only yeah. have things that only specific people want, because then, of course, it's not a library. It's basically someone's house <laughs> mm-hmm. with the books in it that they themselves have bought, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which, of course, is... Yeah, anyway, so um, so there's that. The other recent event, of course, is that Ted Cruz, upon finding out that uh, Joe Biden was going with his family to Nantucket, decided to tweet out this news story with the line, there once was a man from Nantucket. Um, thus sparking, first of all, a lot of people's creativity. There was a lot of creation of limericks about Ted Cruz on Twitter. But secondly... Always a good time. <laughs> yes. Um, maybe we'll link to, you know, one of the collections. HuffPost, I think, collected some of them. But um, mm-hmm. it also, of course, caused a lot of perplexity on Twitter because it was... It's unclear on some level. I mean, it's completely unclear what Ted Cruz was trying to say, but it's also unclear what he meant by tweeting this limerick. He didn't tweet the whole limerick, of course, just the first line. But presumably he tweeted it on the assumption that everyone knows the rest of it. It is obscene. Right. Is it, a, it is an obscene, explicit limerick <laughs> based on phallus size, which means... Twitter was somewhat confused about why Ted Cruz would want to essentially tweet out an explicit limerick implying that the president has a very large phallus, which, of course, generally is seen as a sign of potent masculinity, not the thing that usually Ted Cruz wants Joe Biden to be associated with. Right. So it was all very odd. It's also a little unclear why Ted Cruz wants to tweet out an obscene limerick. Who knows? Um, <laughs> anyway, we'll find out. There's so much so much that we don't know about Ted Cruz and so little that I actually do want to yeah. know about what goes on well, in there. Well, for sure. Yes. Um, but hopefully SNL will do something with this. Um, Amy Bryant's yes. Ted Cruz is fantastic. Just, they're, just, <laughs> they're just handing it over yeah. on a platter at this yes. point. And I would like to see her come up with a limerick. <laughs> based on this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
Um, what I gotta say is we did talk a lot about book bannings in library school. Oh, I bet. And one of the things that I remember the most about this is this idea that you should create a paper trail. Mm. Like there should be, if somebody comes in and they want to complain, they got to fill out a form. Mm -hmm. And maybe it should be a long form. And like they got to put their name on it. And there's got to be like this multi-step process. Um, Primarily to make it a really unattractive option. Mm -hmm. The things that usually happen... um, is just that people take out books like that that they don't agree with, and then they just don't return them. Like, they lose, the, they claim they lose them. You know, they say, oh, I'm sorry, so they pay the fine. Yeah. And so, you know, the library has to buy a new copy, and I don't know, I guess somebody feels vindicated somewhere along the way, you know? I feel like it goes in cycles, like, about... Ten years ago when I was in library school, there were a lot of um, challenges of gay children's books. Um, Also, we'll put a link in the notes. Somewhere online there is a letter that Kurt Vonnegut uh, wrote to the school board. A school board that tried to ban Slaughterhouse-Five. That's quite... It's quite good and worth reading. He was... Spoiler alert, he was not happy. <laughs> so, yeah. I bet Kurt Vonnegut uh, <laughs> um, definitely frequently banned. I would say of blessed memory, but he would probably take offense at that. So, you Quite know. possibly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's, yes. I mean, also, of course, right? Um, you know, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker... Um, that's right. Maya Angelou. Commonly banned. And that is how we wound up with a dog named Dr. Maya Angelou the dog. Yes. Was that I was reading a book, um, on the day we went to pick her up. It was a book for my class that had like a list of the top 10 most challenged books. And I know why a caged bird, the caged bird sings is in in the list. And, um, my husband took such offense at that, (laughs) that, and like, I guess the name was still kicking around in his head later when he's like, we should name our dog in honor of Angelou. Yes. Yep. There you go. Yeah. I mean, and like Beloved actually is one of the books that did just come up. I don't think it was part of the Spotsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was definitely, um. It was definitely an issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it was one of those things. So I think because there has been this slew, right? There have been all these um, things. So um, I think that, I don't know, we'll have to look it up. We'll post it on this link. I think SNL actually did mention it um, because so I think somebody read it. And like I said, I'm not sure if this is this round, so I don't think it was Spotsylvania, and I don't know if it was this round, but I think it was. I think this is part of the 2021, probably because of the critical race theory, right? You said when you were in library school, mm-hmm. um, everyone is that wasn't, sexuality, yeah. right? 
And that is absolutely still some of them, right? A lot of them were books about like transgender, non-binary teens, stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. because of critical race theory, we're also back around to, I mean, we never left. It's not like, (laughs) but, right. But I think somebody actually read, like, I don't know if they read clips from beloved or they just brought it up that they're, they sort of said, you know, that their child had brought home this book and they were horrified by how explicit it was and it traumatized their child. And this is the book it turned out to be, right, is Beloved. Um, and so there's mm-hmm. some articles that were written where people were basically like, well, yes, it is supposed to be traumatizing. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, right? And, um, you know, that doesn't – not everyone should read it at whatever age, right? But um, probably everyone should at some point read it. <laughs> And yeah. it will probably be traumatizing, but some literature is. And that is a good thing, right? What you yeah. said about social value, right? So we've been having some technical difficulties, ladies, gentlemen, and others, for the last couple of minutes. While this was going on, I've been looking at uh, the lists that the ALA, that's the American Library Association, publishes of banned books for the last 10 years or so. And it's actually not just my um, general impression that the type of books that get challenged has kind of shifted. In fact, like many of the top 10 books that were being banned 10 years ago, a lot of them were related to being sexually explicit, uh, drugs, um offensive language. Of course, To Kill a Mockingbird is on almost every list every year. Uh, But also in 2011, they were uh, proposing to ban The Hunger Games. Um, My Mom's Having a Baby, a Kid's Month-by-Month Guide to Pregnancy. Uh, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. Oh, yeah. Right. Brave New World. Isn't that Sherman Alexie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that was also challenged in 2020, but the reason has gone from being offensive language, racism, religious viewpoint, sexually explicit, unsuited to age group, to also including uh, charges of sexual impropriety against the author. So it's still being challenged, but for different reasons. Or slightly different reasons. But also... um, some books that have been challenged in the last 10 years. Um, the Bible. Yep. Oh, I was going to say there's a lot point. of sex in the Bible. <laughs> Actually, right? <laughs> That's true. And things like the uh, Song of Songs. The Curious Incident anyway. of... Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like if you're reading deeply enough into it for Song of Songs, you probably don't mind the religious viewpoint that Fair. much. Anyway, Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime was challenged for reasons including profanity oh, and atheism. Oh, wow, because that has – I don't think it's been challenged on the other side, but um, certainly mm-hmm. there are um, complaints or something that, uh, you know, it, it. I don't think it ever explicitly says that um, it depicts a kid with autism – it, or it doesn't explicitly, I think, use the word autism, but that has been long right. understood to be the subject of the book. And yet, of course, the author has no mm-hmm. experience really with it. And um, 
And actually, I'm not sure because I actually know better from the play, to be fair, which is weird. The play does not explicitly use the term. I'm not actually sure about the book. But for sure, there is a huge movement against it from various uh, groups um, because of the way it depicts autism. And obviously, right, not only that it's sort of incorrect, but also that it implies a lot of things that can be damaging for people trying to deal mm -hmm. with or who have to deal with or who don't know, and therefore don't know how to deal with um, children or adults who are autistic. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but I don't think any of them have necessarily suggested a um, band, because usually the yeah. whole banning thing tends to be frowned on. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because often you'll get a book where, like, Fifty Shades of Grey was the number two uh, most challenged books of 2015. And reasons given include sexually explicit, unsuitable to age group, and poorly written. Wait, what? Is that again? <laughs> Wait, people are so, trying to ban books for being poorly written now? I guess so. It seems um, like that's got a lot of... I, I don't mean. know. Yeah. See, I think this... Mm -hmm. But also, now, more recently, like in 2017, uh, The Hate You Give, which is a book that is perceived to be anti-police okay. sometimes, is being yeah. challenged So more. I think this kind of takes um, us to, right? Um, as you learned, of course, in library school, and then which is how to navigate these things. And then we've talked, right, that it's sort of sexuality and race, basically all the things that make people uncomfortable, right? And um, I think mm -hmm. what it brings us to is the big question here, which is, first off, obscenity, what is it, right? And there are two possibilities, really. They're way, but I mean, way more. But <laughs> this is like my definition breakdown, that it's either transgressive or it's explicit. Frequently, those things overlap. Mm -hmm. But there are differences, right? So explicit can mean simply... Um, very explicit sexuality or language, right? And some people just complain that, you know, kids of one age group shouldn't be able to read things that are very explicit. The problem is that at a high school, you have kids who are freshmen, who are like 14, who maybe shouldn't be reading explicit things, and kids who are 18 and adults, right, who can legally mm -hmm. read explicit things and even purchase things that are considered very explicit. I think, right? 18 is the age for porn? Yeah. yeah so, I think, I mean, does anybody I have no idea. for that But <laughs> either way. Um, but right, so these, these ideas. So you have those same kids in this school. So you can't really just ban things, but you can put things in the section that's like for juniors and seniors, right? Um, and of course, when I say mm -hmm. you can't ban things, I mean, you shouldn't. Of course, you can. Um, so that's explicit. Then the other side is transgressive. And clearly this line tends to blur with explicit because, as we have just pointed out, a lot of times when people uh, say that something's explicit, what they really mean is not so much that it is explicit, but that it is about something that they think is transgressive. So, for example, of course, um, going all the way back a couple decades um, – to the documentary, this film is not yet rated, which was, I think, by Kirby, um, where he talks at length about the ratings board in general. There's a lot more awareness about this now, but about the fact that, um, for example, heterosexual sex scenes were not rated nearly as explicitly as 
uh, queer sex scenes, right? So that the exact mm-hmm. same sexual act between in a straight scene between a you know male and female identifying actor would get an R rating, but that exact same act between two actors who identified as the same gender would get an NC-17 rating. Um, and that is true in banning books as well, right? So when people say explicit, it might not be mm-hmm. explicit. They object to the fact that it is a gay, you know, child, maybe, just like a gay character. <laughs> not So it might not even be explicit at all, right? It might simply be that the parents view it as transgressive. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is really important because it brings up the fact of who decides what is explicit, right? So the idea, I know it when I see it, is actually a reminder of just how individualized it is. And the fact, of course, that the gays, the male gays, the straight gays, the white gays, right, all of these sort of dominant gazes are frequently the ones defining what is explicit, what is transgressive, right? And of course, Laura Mulvey came up with the idea of the male gaze based on film, where you have a male director, which goes to the idea that, like, sex scenes... Mm-hmm are usually are of course not only that they are heterosexual but they are seen from the perspective of the male director right so that sometimes even a heterosexual scene filmed by a woman might be viewed differently by a ratings board because it's directed a little bit differently or just because the director is a woman right and so something something that wouldn't be explicit if a man directed it is explicit because a woman directed it right um yeah. And so, mm-hmm. right, critical race theory, as we said, like all of these things, critical race theory, of course, is really not a, it's a myth. I mean, it's a real thing in that, like, obviously, <laughs> academics discuss how race affects society in all sorts of ways, but it is not the thing that people think it is. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so all these ideas that sort of um, bring people to the table and cause them to define things in ways that other people would not define them. Um, yeah, so who gets to decide, who gets to determine, who gets to say, I know it when I see it? (laughs) These are the questions. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, it is fun, right? You know, Kurt Vonnegut, proudly banned. Um, it is a reminder that obviously, you know, there are plenty of white male authors, straight authors, who absolutely still fall into these categories because, you know, (laughs) <laughs> they still write things that are not deemed mm-hmm. appropriate by others of that identification. Yeah. John Green, for example, has been challenged uh, yes. a number of times. Like, very well-renowned mm-hmm. um, YA yeah. author. John Steinbeck has been oh, challenged. Course, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, of course, if you're a classic author... You hope to be, I assume. It means you're doing your job, yeah. right? Because you are disturbing someone out there. Mm-hmm. You are causing them to feel uncomfortable. And arguably, good art does that a lot. I mean, that is one of the things good art does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, we've brought up Terry Pratchett a lot on this episode, or in this series, but um, <laughs> he has some great definitions, right? <laughs> um, if there's an urn That's in true. it then it means that the nudity is artistic or it might be a vase. Oh yes. <laughs> or sometimes like a gauzy curtain, I think. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's how you know. Or if they're eating grapes. So there are these certain signs that make it mm-hmm. art. 
and not something other than art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, but he is, of course, making fun of this idea. Right. Um, and actually, oh my gosh, um, I think a f- few weeks ago, so by the time this comes out, it'll be a long time ago, but Billy Connolly was just interviewed on Graham Norton. Um, and they brought up a time that he ran naked in public in London. Was it like around the British Museum or something? Something. Anyway, he was somewhere and he ran naked around. And um, one of his, you know, and of course, again, that there's this sort of point, like the British are both sort of very prudish and also very open. And it's this, but it's a very weird line that they walk <laughs> um, between being repressed and being more open than the U.S. in a lot of ways, because we get all the Puritans, right? Um, but anyway, and that was sort of what his, you know, thing was about. Like, he sort of ran around naked outside, and like, why not? Um, and he talks about it a little bit. But it is, it's this funny sort of, um, you know, you couldn't do that in the U.S. Like, you just couldn't. I mean, they'd have to shut down everything, and the crowd would all be fake. You know, I mean... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, you you just, you would be arrested. Doesn't matter who you are. So there there is something interesting about the ways in which, you know, nudity does not, is not allowed really in the U.S. Um, of any kind. <laughs> I mean, nudity of any kind. Um, but I actually remember when I was True. like in seventh grade, phenomenal, brilliant, amazing English teacher, one of the best teachers of my life, Mr. Powers, our class had a discussion <laughs> That was definitely instigated by some of the more, um, I don't know, sassy students in the group about movie ratings, actually. Um, because some who knows what had come out back then. I mean, this is a long time ago now. But um, something had come out, and there was some female nudity in it. And it was R-rated, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure the nudity was art tasteful of some kind, but whatever, you know, they're probably urns or gauzy curtains, but, uh, yeah. but whatever it was, you know, and so there was sort of the discussion sort of came up and the, a lot of the girls in the class, women, young women, um, pointed out that you never get to see front frontal male nudity and that this was an unfair double standard, mm-hmm. which of course it is, right? We recognize this at the age of whatever we were, I'm going to say probably 13. Anyway. Um, yeah. 13. And, you know, yeah. and it was like, this is the patriarchy, right? Um, <laughs> and our teacher was like, yeah, well, frontal male nudity does exist, but that's when an R rating becomes NC-17. Um, and we're like, yeah, that's, you know, that's misogyny. Like, why should you be more allowed to see women than men? Right? Um, mm-hmm. And of course, um, female nudity can only be from sort of the waist up, even. Right? Anything lower than that is definitely NC-17, which again is problematic in a lot of ways. Um, and I know the in the documentary about rating films, this film is not yet rated, um, they talk about The Cooler, which was a film with people like William H. Macy and stuff. Um, and there is a sex scene where I guess there was a little bit of a shot of female nudity below the waist. And they went to the ratings board to get it reversed. Um, and the ratings board almost never reverses anything. 
um, sort of famously, a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a big studio film, you get what the, they'll tell you what to do <laughs> to get the rating you want. And if you're not, they'll just basically, you know, whatever you get, what they give you. Um, but wow. uh, I think it was Maria Bello is think is the woman in the scene. And she said like, she, I think had just sort of recently had a kid. I don't know before the movie, or at least by the time they went to the ratings board. Um, and she was like, I was going to fight for that because there is this sense somehow that, you know, it's shameful or whatever. And she's like, no, I had just given birth. They were going to let that into the movie. <laughs> um, you know, and it's barely a shot, you know, but probably you see hair or something, which you weren't allowed to see. Right. Um, but it is this sort of really interesting commentary on how we view things as explicit and why are they explicit. Right. Um, and the other thing about this, of course, is um, that things we view as explicit or transgressive today were not necessarily always seen that way. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I do want to give a shout out to Bakhtin. Yes. Um, because Mikhail Bakhtin, 1895 to 1975, uh, wrote his dissertation, Rabelais and His World. Um, wrote it during like... Hmm? Oh, we've... We've talked yes. about him before, I think. Yes, yes, I hope we have. I don't think he's been footnoted in an episode, but we've definitely mentioned him. Um, and we've certainly talked mm-hmm. about, you know, Rabelais um, in one of the library episodes, actually. Yeah. But, um, he, so Bakhtin wrote this dissertation, or finished it during World War II. He's Russian, so this is in Russian, in Russia. Finished it during World War II, is not deemed appropriate. <laughs> It was finally published in 1965, so like 20 years later. Um, And luckily it became known before he died. Um, But it's been incredibly influential. And he talks about carnivalesque and the grotesque. And he ties it to the Middle Ages. But um, essentially, the carnivalesque, we've certainly talked about, right? Um, It's that idea that um, festivals give us a chance to blow off steam, right? And it's sort of like the purge. You get to do things for a specified amount of time, whatever you want, and then everything goes back to normal. And it's transgressive, but not really subversive, because in the end, even though you can cross these boundaries and be transgressive for a short period of time, when it's over, everything goes back to normal. You've blown off all your steam. You're not actually mm-hmm. going to cause a revolution. You're not really going to subvert the power structures, right? You had a little bit of fun being transgressive and now you're going back to normal. Um, so it's not really a dangerous type of transgression, right? Um, or at least not dangerous to the power structures. It might be dangerous to individuals. Um, the grotesque mm-hmm. is related, but a little different. Um, Bactine actually had a leg amputated, um, because of, I think, bone disease or something. So um, he was very sort of interested in the idea of bodies that do not behave the way they should or bodies that are not considered mm-hmm. normative, right? Um, and so this is the idea of the grotesque. Um, bodies ooze, bodies leak, right? Bodies have fluids, um, bodies sag, you know, all the things that happen, Um that are frequently attributed to figures we've actually talked about, right? Like the crone, the hag, right? So why old women are kind of considered dangerous because their bodies no longer do what they're supposed to, which is give birth, right? (laughs) Women are meant to give birth. Uh, But of course, even in giving birth, that's a sort of terrifying thing that the body shouldn't really be doing, right? There's leaking and all sorts of things. 
Um, so the ways in which women are deeply tied to the grotesque. Um, and the ways in which men try to define themselves kind of in opposition to it and stuff like this. Anyway, um, so a lot of these ideas are important also, of course, to how we define what's explicit or obscene, right? Um, frequently bodies doing things that they are sort of considered like they shouldn't do. So you said like the pregnancy book, like what the heck? You should have a book that describes for young, for older siblings, what happens when their younger siblings are born, Right? But the mm-hmm. idea that somehow that would be labeled as, or that that would want to be banned, goes right. presumably exactly to this idea of the grotesque. Right? That someone finds this to be troubling. Right? <laughs> the idea of explaining this to kids. Um, which is, you know, bizarre. But in this context, you know, sort of makes sense. Right? Um, anyway, so all of these, all of these ideas are important. Um, and finally, of course, like the scatological side of things, which goes to the grotesque, of course. Uh, we'll come back to that next time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought I would start with, speaking of the gaze, um, something we have talked about before in episode 12, note 28, apparently, um, which is the phallus tree, which is a medieval image that appears you know, around. It's around. <laughs> and it is a tree. You know, it's always just a tree with like phalluses as fruit, I guess, right? Um, so there is a 13th century fresco um, in the Italian town uh, Massa Maritima that was uncovered because it was painted, you know, when it was painted, it was fine. And then sometime thereafter, it was deemed possibly not fine and it was covered up. Um, so there's, so that's, that's a sort of famous one. But the one that is, there are a few that are really famous and cool. Uh, and these are drawings in the margins. So these are marginalia um, that were probably illuminated by a woman. Oh, interesting. Yes. Um, and so we'll definitely post links. Um, this, these are in um, the Bibliothèque Nationale. Um, so it's BNF 25526. Um, this is, the text is the Roman de la Rose by Jean de Moon. Um, this is a very sort of, it's a satiric chivalric romance. So we've sort of talked about, we've mentioned it briefly, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we've talked about chivalry. But this is a sort of satiric one. It is definitely misogynistic. It's about how women are terrible and like what you have to do <laughs> to deal with them. Christian Tibizan, who was a, you know, famous French medieval woman, who was also a famous French medieval author, definitely wrote against the Roman de la Rose's misogyny. Um, but this manuscript of it, um, it's the Roman de, uh, Jean de Men wrote it, wrote his section of it, we should say. There's a little prior part, and there's some people who probably added to it later. But anyway, um, at the end of the 1200s, basically. And this manuscript um, is from probably about half a century later. And um, it was illuminated by um, Jean de Montbaston and her her husband, Richard. She and her husband um, illuminated things together. And she continued after he died in 1353. And it is frequently assumed... Okay. Um, yeah, it's frequently assumed that these illuminations are solely hers. Um, and what they are, <laughs> um, there are a couple famous 
pages. Um, and they've got in one a monk um, handing a nun um, a penis. <laughs> a phallus, but, you know, we might as well just use the word here. We're talking about obscenity. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, like a gift or whatever, <laughs> you know. Okay. I think I pasted the links into our document. Uh, we'll definitely post, we'll definitely post links to these. Okay. Um, the, you know, the BNF, uh, has them, uh, you know, scanned in or whatever, like the, in their digital archive, their digital archive, right? So you can see the whole manuscript of this manuscript of the Roman de la Rose, but these specific images, mm-hmm. um, are at the bottom, right? So they're the bottom of the page. And, um, one of them, as I said, is this image of the monk handing the nun, this, this phallus. Um, and at, that's on the right, the bottom right. Um, and the same, on the same page, um, is a phallus tree <laughs> with, um, a couple nuns harvesting phalli, phalloi, I guess. And so they've, they've already harvested a couple. And they seem to be harvesting some more. And this is folio 160 recto, if we're if we're interested. And it's it seems to be, or the assumption has kind of been right. If this is um, Jen's, you know, solo <laughs> illumination here, um, that it's kind of her her satire, right? So almost her critique or commentary on the text that she is illuminating, right? So she's illuminating this mm. text. It's this famous text, you know, it's, but um, it's also, of course, misogynistic. And so as a woman illustrator that she is sort of turning her gaze on the phallus um, and sort of commenting or critiquing in some ways the subject of this poem by, you know, drawing her own little satire here which is this sort of sense of men, frequently the way men, of course, I mean, as this poem does, it sexualizes women, right? That women is just sort of being sexual beings who are there for men. And if they're not there, you know, very kind of incel, right? If they're not there for men, then there's a problem with them. Um, Mm. And so that she's commenting on this with the phallus trees, right? So first of all, that the women don't really need the men, right? The the phallus is kind of detached from the man. Um, but then also, um, you know, that the monk, like, handing the nun this <laughs> as a kind of gift, right? As though, you know, there is a little, is there a sense of maybe castration or, um, you know, there's something very interesting about kind of the autonomy of the women versus the men. And so there is this def- definite sense of the male gaze. Um, and the other page is um, 106 Verso. Folio 106 Verso, um, where we have a single nun harvesting the phallus tree. Um, there are already a couple in a basket. And she seems to be harvesting some more. And that's on the left again. So the tree always sort of occupies this left position. And then this time on the right, um, a nun and a monk are embracing. Um, and this is, of course, an earlier page, right? So there's this sort of interesting way, you know, maybe we follow them around a little bit. So like the nuns sort of come in and off of the tree. Sometimes the monk is sort of embracing a woman. It's a different monk later, probably who's handing over the, the phallus, but it's hard for me to tell if it's supposed to be the same nun. The nuns, 
Yeah. Nuns are don't have a ton no. of distinguishing features no. because of their right, right. headdresses. Um, and yeah, it is a different monk later. But um but there is this, still this sort of interesting mm-hmm. idea of, you know, the ways in which the female gaze can look at and sexualize and sort of satirize men and their sexuality the same way that, you know, men mm-hmm. can and do with the male case treat women that way. Um, yeah. So it's this really interesting moment um, of this portrayal of this motif, um, particularly because it seems to be by a female illuminator. Uh, and we've actually talked about female illustrators before, um, but I think I left this one for, for a later episode in which we would cover this specifically. Yeah. I feel like most of the illuminations we talked about, Maybe we're in the context of a um, convent or monastery. So it's actually interesting to hear that by the 1300s, the proceedings had moved outside of the church enough that a married couple Mm -hmm. could do this as a um, career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... um and there are a lot of instances, we, we talked about a few, but there are a lot of instances and increasingly a lot of instances throughout like the 13 and 1400s where women are part of crafts. Um, it's not always clear. I mean, frequently with their husbands, sometimes it actually seems that they were the primary and they sort of brought their husbands in because that's how you can belong to a guild. <laughs> but then, of course, yeah, if the husband dies, the mm-hmm. woman tends to keep going. Vigil Raber's wife, similarly, I think we talk about that in the actual episode on women artisans. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of instances, right, where then the wife keeps going in the business, because why not, right? But then it also means that if if mm-hmm. the wife does live longer, and there are things we know were done by that studio after the husband died, then you know for sure it's the wife who did it, <laughs> right? Um Which is helpful, because then you can tell. So that's why the stating of this manuscript isn't sure, but it it is very possible that these were her, you know. Um, and it definitely seems, it has that sort of sensibility, right, of the female gaze kind of replying to the work that she's illuminating, which is kind of amazing, right, and really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, so that's that's our sort of phallus tree. And it's worth pointing out that it's not sort of clear necessarily otherwise what the phallus tree generally signified it's not clear if it had a specific significance that everyone sort of knew um it seems to have been Mm -hmm. more intended for satire of different kinds and the context probably helps you tell you what right so here it's very much seems to be part of the female Mm -hmm. gaze right um the one that was painted uh the fresco and massa maritima is not necessarily as clearly a female gaze satire seems to be more of a political gaze <laughs> setter um mm-hmm. but you know that's a sort of reminder also that motifs of course can be used for different reasons right that's sort of how iconography frequently works as you can reinterpret it in different ways and people will recognize what you're trying to say right yeah um so i did want to get into um pins and badges uh so these are um speaking of like things that people do today right one of the sort of issues, of course, that's happened in schools along with book banning <laughs> um, is that there's been, you know, can teachers or can they not hang up pride flags, right? Are students allowed to mm-hmm. wear, like, 
you know, transgender pins to, you know, stuff like this, right? Um, or carry, you know, little flags with them or something like this. Um, and there's something sort of weird again, right? It's freedom of speech. So theoretically, if a teacher wants to hang up like a Black Lives Matter or a pride flag or a transgender flag, like these things should be allowed, right? But they're not always. Um, and it's, an, again, right, this sort of interesting question of contested identity, right? What are we allowed to wear in certain situations, right? Who has control? Um, there are huge problems with dress codes in schools because women's dress codes famously in schools, right? And by schools, we're generally talking, I mean, obviously K to 12, but we're frequently talking high school, right? Mm -hmm. That the dress code for girls, for young women, are they're much stricter. Um, so, mm -hmm. and sometimes there have been, right, instances of, like, guys, um, you know, dressing in ways that clearly flout the dress code, but then they get away with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but it's stuff like for girls that's, you know, things have to come so many inches below the knee, which, of course, if you're wearing shorts is just weird. Like, nobody's wearing shorts that go below their knees. Um, or... Mm -hmm. Whatever, you know, all this weird stuff. So, um, you know, the ways in which, like, dress is, of course, um, policed, sometimes very literally. Um, so one of the things, of course, that people then do that has really come back in the f past some years um, is the idea of sort of wearing pins, right? So people wear pins on jackets and hats and backpacks to show identity and affiliation and all sorts of things. Um, and... Interestingly, the Middle Ages was also really into pins. Um, this is a thing that's been around since ancient times because cool. pins like hold your clothes on, <laughs> right? This is something we don't necessarily have today. Right. We wear them just for fun, right? But in the past, they right. were practical. We have Velcro yes. and zippers. They, they did, not. did not have those things. <laughs> oh, Velcro. Such an amazing thing. Um, yes. But yeah. um, they did have practical pins, but they also had pins that were clearly just kind of about identity. Um, and the question mm -hmm. frequently is, <laughs> some of them, it's obvious what they meant. So the most famous, they tend to be called badges, because this is a way of identifying them as different from modern day pins. But I'm not entirely sure that they should be identified as that different, right? So one of the things you have are pilgrim mm -hmm. badges, which tended to show where you'd been, okay. right? So if you managed to get, like, all the way to Jerusalem, you'd pick up a pin oh. to show you'd been there, obviously, right? So it's like a commemorative squished penny. Yes, Like, you can get exactly. from those machines. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if you go to Paris today, you could get little Eiffel Tower as a pin to show you've been there, right? If you go oh, to yeah. Jerusalem today, you get a little, yeah, like, sure. whatever you want from Jerusalem. <laughs> I don't know. Um, on a pin, mm -hmm. right? Um, so... There is this sort of, you know, famous, and there's some famous ones, obviously, right? Jerusalem and Rome um, are, you know, St. James. They're some of the big ones that you went to to show you show you got there. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, there's wide variety. I mean, you just went to Canterbury. Like, you got a little pilgrim pin to show you've been there. Um, and a lot of them, you know, they, they're sort of pilgrim specific. So they might show, like, a person with a staff, you know, with a palm branch or something to show you made the journey, whatever it is. Um, but <laughs> because what's the point in going 
if you don't tell right. people that you went. 100%. And, right. you know, you, could, you couldn't bring yeah. back your photographs, so you had to bring back something. <laughs> right. They did right. not have Instagram. Um, so you had to do what you could. So one of the things that have been found all over, but it's not entirely clear to a lot of people what they were for, um, are explicit genitalia badges. What were these for? What did they mean? It's a little unclear. Um, they have been found throughout Western Europe. They are especially prevalent in the Netherlands, or at least um, they have been most most acknowledged, maybe, by the Netherlands. There are a couple um, volumes where they published like all of the badges that had kind of been found, and there are some pages and pages of explicit ones, and maybe not quite as many have been found in certain other places. But to be fair... Given how well these things last anyway, because a lot of them are really cheap. You know, it's a cheap trinket that you got. I mean, you mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> most people who made these huge right. voyages like today, you didn't have a ton left over necessarily to buy expensive stuff. You buy the cheap little trinkets, right? Mm-hmm. But the tourist stuff. So, yeah, so you got these badges. Um, and we'll definitely post links so that you can see them. Um, but there are, as I said, right, so they're genitalia badges. So they're definitely badges with um, phalluses. Um, and Mm -hmm. these tend to be sort of interesting. Um, they can be winged. That's with wings, like with legs and wings. So they look kind of like, right. I don't know. What would he like? Like an ostrich maybe, (laughs) but a phallus. Right. I see here one with wings that has like a little crown also. It's like, it's dressed a little bit like a court gesture. Yeah. Or like. Like a lot of weird medieval creatures that you would find in marginalia, except it's a penis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, with a little crown. Yeah. Um, which, you know, different types of pilgrim badges frequently did have things like crowns, right? Because you, right now you made the pilgrimage, so mm-hmm. you sort of got, got a crown, or you're, you know, you got a badge with a figure with a crown. Um, yeah, so, but it's a little unclear, again, what these were for. So I'm just going to put this out there. Um, that first off, whenever people find stuff with genitalia, and this goes back, I mean, tens of thousands of years, you can find the oldest, you know, like the sort of early, early stone statues of like, that they call Venuses, right? Um, and -hmm. frequently, there are two choices that they come up with when they're trying to figure out what they are. The either, if it's female fertility, and if it's not, Mm -hmm. or sometimes even if it is female, um, and you know, fertility or that it's apotropaic, meaning it wards off evil. Um, these are the two things that usually people suggest. And probably they're frequently neither of them true. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, <laughs> it's not clear that they thought of these things the way we think of these things. So it's not clear that they view them right. as quite as obscene or explicit as we view them. Right? Um, so, Sure. Fertility is a great possibility, but potentially there are mm-hmm. other possibilities. Um, they could certainly be satiric. That's what I kept thinking. Like, you know how sometimes people have bumper stickers that say things like, my kid beat up your honor student yes. or something like that? Like, using the same iconography that's on the actual pilgrim badges really does feel like he's saying... Uh, you, hey, you over there who's wearing this badge you got 
you know, in Jerusalem, yes. you're a dick. And that is actually a distinct possibility, right? So I don't know if you have any of these yeah. in the images you're looking at, but like here's one where there's actually a figure holding what might be something like a palm branch. So a sort of plug like figure riding mm-hmm. on one of the winged phalluses. Um, and the phallus also okay, seems to have like a yeah. little bell, which sort of implies that it's, you know, like an animal that you're riding, right? Um, yeah. Right, here's, and so there are sort of a, a variety of these of these types of things. Um, the phalloi <laughs> phalluses come in other varieties as well. There's one that, again, it's like a big one with legs and wings. Um, and there's a person on top of it who seems to be a woman with a basket of small phalluses in a wheelbarrow. Yes. I yeah. saw that one, and originally I thought she was right. standing on a cannon. Yeah. And then I zoomed in, and I had the it moment of, oh, cannon. that's not no. a cannon. But this actually gives our listeners a good idea of what, what the phalluses look like. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, there are a few of those, right? Um, where, yeah, they have the person, probably a woman on top with a little basket of phalluses in a, in a wheelbarrow. Um. So that's, right, that's a sort of um, version of some of these badges. Um, there's another one where there are two figures on either side, um, and the phallus is just in the middle like a pillar, almost like a pillar that you might make a pilgrimage to, except you can tell that it's not just a pillar because it has balls, right? I mean, um, but there are these two figures on either side, women, who seem to be about to adorn it. At the top, which also, of course, implies other things are going to be going on. Um, yeah, so definitely, right? There's a sort of sense of satire. Um, I also see one that looks like a lion or something that has caught the phallus and is carrying it in its oh, mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, yeah. pretty good. Um, and we should point out that a lot of the ones online, you can buy replicas of these, right? That people have created replicas. <laughs> Um, of a lot of these badges, because they are, of course, you know, I mean, they seem very modern. Oh, man, if we were ever going to do merch for this podcast. Yep, exactly. This would be just, like, so just yes. so perfect. Yes. Um, okay. And then we should point out, so there also are sometimes um, phalluses um, doing other things. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So there's some phalluses in a ship, um, which definitely seems to apply, right? Sailing is another, of course, if you had to sail, you could get badges. Um, you know, pilgrimage badges that both show that you'd like made the voyage, but also that might be of a saint or someone who would protect you on the voyage, right? Um, yeah, so little phalluses like sailing the ship. Um, all right, so there are a lot of, there are a lot, there's a wide, wide variation, I think is our point as well, right? So clearly, yeah, they're sort mm-hmm. of based on real, but also these are also real, right? Um, and although they do seem like potentially they are kind of satiric, they also probably do have, um, more, a little more meaning, maybe, than the, you know, bumper stickers that's like, my kid can beat up your kid. Um, because there are, yeah, there are a lot of them that have been found in a lot of places, right? So there does also mm-hmm. seem to be this interesting way in which they do have a kind of meaning. Um, it's even possible that these were considered on some level, I'm going to say, quote unquote, real, um, badges in their own right. 
which is to say that you might be the type of, you know, Chaucer's pilgrims who go to Canterbury are basically on spring break. They're all of them sex crazed and everything. Not all of them. They're almost all of them sex crazed and everything else. Um, that in some ways, it's a reminder. A lot of people did kind of treat a pilgrimage a bit like a spring break. Not everyone who went on pilgrimage was quite as devout as we might like to think. Um, nor should mm-hmm. we think that, obviously. Right? They may have truly wanted forgiveness for something or wanted to help someone else heal. Like, But at the same time, it's a if you can afford to go, it's an amazing vacation. <laughs> right? Um, and it is also very possible that some of these were sort of for people who, you know didn't so much want to bring home the Eiffel Tower as, um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just remember in like the movie French Kiss, Meg Ryan buys Kevin Klein a um, trick French, uh, like Eiffel Tower. And like when she like, you know, <laughs> sort of pokes it at groups. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. You know, some people would rather, it's like the people yeah. who go to, um, Florence and bring home the apron of Michelangelo's David, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, or, you know, yeah. which of course he's naked, but that's art. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. that's that's usually the point, right? The apron is just usually the close up of his genitalia, right? And so you give it to like whoever to wear, you know, while they're cooking hamburgers or something. Um, but it, that kind of thing, right? People buy that stuff today. Why would you? I mean, people also bought that stuff hundreds of years right. ago, right? Um, the fun thing is that it's not just phalluses; it is also vulvas. Yes, also known as the vagina. Um, so you get some great ones. There's one with three phalluses carrying a vagina, like on a um, yeah, Helen, basically Helen. No. <laughs> I was going to say Palantir, but that's um, right. That's a different mythology. It's also the vulva yes. is wearing a crown. Um, and in this case, the vulva, it actually looks kind of like um, the ways in which you'd carry a saint during a, pro- a procession, right? You'd have the saint mm-hmm. like on the stretcher being carried, you know, at shoulder height by devout church members. Um, so there have been a lot of parallels to it as... Um, you know, Marian processions, possibly. Um, or, you mm-hmm. know, even, we will get to this in a sec, but um, there's also a whole series of images where the wounds of Christ look like vaginas. So this could also be a sort of commentary about, um, you know, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, or, you know, the wounds of Christ, mm-hmm. which do frequently look like vaginas. Um, it also, the mandorla, uh, which is the oval that, um, you know, saints, but really like the, either Jesus or Mary are frequently depicted as within. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of looks like that as well, of course. Um, anyway, so that's that's a good one. Um, but then there are also, there are vaginas. <laughs> um, there are vaginas just hanging out on ladders. Oh, it's a little less clear um, why they're on ladders. But... There are some sort of interesting, like, if you saw a phallus on a ladder, you would assume kind of like maybe climbing up to someone's window or something. Um, But a vagina on a ladder, like, gives you that same sort of feminine energy in some ways, right? Um, 
So there is a very sort of female gaze sense about it. There's also a brilliant one, mm-hmm. of which you could absolutely buy a replica, of a vagina crowned on a horse with a bow and arrow. Um, the crown looks like there might be little phalluses for the points on the crown. I think it's the first image that comes up on this. Yeah, I can't... Um, yeah, it looks almost like yeah. a crossbow, yep. mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, but yeah. it's this vagina going hunting. You know, it's like this royal vagina going hunting, right? With the bow and arrow on the horse. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, which is brilliant, because here you got the feminine energy as, like, the hunter, right? As the knight. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, so that's a phenomenal one. Um you also there's also a great one of a vagina as a pilgrim. So it's got the little pilgrim hat and the staff, <laughs> the little bag. Um, yes, and that's a sort of reminder. The staff is the staff supposed to have a a penis on the top there? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, yeah. Why not? And clearly, right? That's a direct replica on some level of. Again, actual pilgrim badges where you'd get a little figure of a pilgrim, right? Um, but in mm-hmm. this case, it's a vagina. So again, definitely the feminine energy. <laughs> um, but also the sort of interesting commentary on pilgrimage, right? Is it a satire? Is it an actual sort of commentary on, you know, I'm a female pilgrim who did this and this is what I want from it, right? My feminine energy, right? The empowerment. Um, yeah. So that's that's a fun one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And then you get, you know, of same as the ones with the phallus. Um, you definitely get vaginas and a kind of um, a variety of, you know, different poses. Um, there are some winged vaginas as well. Um, there's also um, a badge with a phallus in its legged sort of canon look pointing at a vagina mm-hmm. with legs. So this one, they're together. Um, is that for a couple who went? Like, who knows? <laughs> um, maybe it's a badge for someone who's single and looking for something. I mean, who is to say, right? Um, but yeah, so there are these sort of um, variety of things. Uh, there's another one where the phallus and vagina both kind of look like pilgrims. They're together and they're both sort of have legs and they're holding a a staff between them. Um, and they kind of look like they both might have little pilgrim hats, although maybe the penis is just the tip. <laughs> but but it's made to look like a pilgrim <laughs> as well, right? Um, so they're like two pilgrims together. Yeah. Anyway, so again, right, this reminder of it's not clear that it was necessarily seen as obscene at the time. Um, it may have been, but mm-hmm. may not have been. Um and the same thing is true for the most, you know, probably famous medieval vagina, um, which is on the Sheelana Giggs, um, which, of course, is an Irish name, but a modern name. Uh, we don't know where the name came from. We don't know how long they had that name. <laughs> it's also not clear how old they are as a concept, um, because okay. they exist. They also exist in... They also exist in other parts of Western Europe, um, mm-hmm. but um, I, you know, there's this sort of um, interesting sense in which 
how far they go back, exactly what kind of pagan figures they might be linked to are totally unclear. Their link isn't solely to pagan figures, though, because they definitely, most of the Shilana gigs that are undeniably Shilana gigs are from well, 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 well into Christianity. Um, and not just well into Christianity, but mm-hmm. after even the, the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland in 1169, um, which is under Henry II of England. Um, and so there has been some question of if some of them were maybe sort of brought with with that. Like, did some of it come from kind of Norman areas um, where they where they also exist? And they exist further west than that as well, or further east than that as well. So um, there might also have been a little bit of maybe syncretism or maybe just sort of two traditions that kind of shared something met, right? Where there might have been sort of some older cultic mm-hmm. traditions there are examples from much that are much older that do that are these female figures with very very large vaginas, so they may have sort of also met this tradition and then kind of become their own, you know, or just you know, continued to exist in Ireland in this way via this newer tradition. So they're not exclusively Irish, but this name is Irish. Where they come from, what they're derived yeah. from is unclear, but basically they are naked women who are presumed to be elderly. With who that are holding open their vaginas, which are giant. Sometimes the figures don't even have legs. <laughs> yes. Um, and again, these it's interesting because they certainly showed up with under Christianity. I mean, they existed for sure under Christianity. They were on churches, they were put on castles, they were put on towers. Uh, but then, you know, you sort of hit like the 1700s, um, and there are start to be considered embarrassing and taken away, covered up. The interesting thing is that by mm-hmm. then, a lot of people were really attached to them. A lot of people may have viewed them as pagan or Celtic, even though they might not have been. Um, they'd certainly worked their way into sort of local tradition <laughs> to the point that people sort of complained or protected them if they were taken away. Um, and there's been a recent, very recent, hmm. like, art project where people have made modern ones and put them up Um as a kind of interesting feminist reclamation of the figure and also a sign that where we kind of started, right? That female genitalia shouldn't be considered obscene just because, you know, it yeah. does tend to be misogynistic to view it that way, right? The sense of the female body doing things it shouldn't, etc. I have a friend who's a contemporary artist in Dublin, I think, who makes necklaces with the Shilinda gig yes. on them. Yeah, exactly. And so I want to give a shout out also for this whole episode, by the way, to Medieval Obscenities, which is a book edited by uh, Nicola McDonald. Um, and for this, uh, also to like Georgia Rhodes, who's got an essay decoding the Shilinda gig, um, which is in oh, Feminist Formations, volume 22, number two, summer 2010. Um, and... There's some really interesting questions because, of course, people want to um, associate the Shilana gigs with sort of birth, fertility, life, death. Um, and that does seem to be where they have become associated. Right. So that's where they've been put. But um, it's not clear necessarily what they meant when they originated. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Eamon Kelly, 
who actually has an essay in Medieval Obscenities, um, has suggested that they might be connected to the idea that in Irish tradition, the land was considered female, and sort of lords were wedded to it. They had to protect it and, you know, help it be fertile and stuff like that. Um, and that the Sheelana gigs may have represented that in some way. Um, but it's also this interesting reminder that, again, right, when you see this image of a female figure, it's sort of expected mm. that it's about fertility or birth or that it's apotropaic. Um, and something about the fact that they're probably elderly has sort of bothered people because it means that they can't be about childbirth. Are we assuming that they're elderly because they have That's no hair? That's one of the reasons. Some of them also look more or, skeletal. Okay. So there seems to be a sense that they're supposed to be older. Um, some people have, have suggested actually maybe yeah. they're actually very young, that they're pre-childbirth. Um, hmm. But the idea that they might be older and post-childbirth in some ways makes them much more transgressive. Because in that case, the... Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of the vulva being this huge part, but not being connected to childbirth or fertility, it becomes sort of really interesting commentary, right? Then why the importance? What are they for? Right? As though, like, you can't imagine what this female figure would be for Mm -hmm. if it's not about fertility, right? And so then people are like, well, maybe it's about how, you know, the older women protect the cycle of birth and life or something like this. (laughs) Or how death leads to rebirth, Right, that somehow because it's women and vaginas, like it has to be something about that cycle. Right, but what if we read them as something else? Right. Um, anyway, and this is also a sort of interesting reminder of, as I said, that the images of Christ's wounds are frequently shown as vaginas. Um, there's even some where the church is like being born out of his wound. So, <laughs> hmm. yes. Ouch. Um, but then it, But, you know, so, like, it really is kind of a vagina. Um, So there's also then this interesting commentary of um, the ways in which female genitalia can function as metaphoric birth. (laughs) Um, Right, as just a symbol maybe of renewal, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But again, because interestingly, like, these figures are not giving birth. I mean, they're sort of explicitly not giving birth. So what is the concept, right? Um, there, you know, there might be, is there kind of a, um, is there a threat? Some people thought maybe there's kind of a threat, like the vagina dentata, right? That like, you'll get eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people view them as somehow very, I mean, the ways in which they became adopted by society, at least to the point that people really wanted to protect these images, um, they did come to be seen certainly as kind of protective in some way. Um, but it's this really interesting question because then they were also, of course, for a long time considered obscene and horrifying and hidden away or removed or destroyed, you know. Um, but some of them were in places where people didn't know what they were. Others are in places where they're just mislabeled. Um, some are mm-hmm. in places where it's like woman giving birth, even though clearly that's not what it is. <laughs> um, so it's also a sort of interesting reminder just of the ways in which people sometimes reframe things that are explicit. You know, they reframe these things in ways to try and make them seem not explicit or to try and make them fit into the context they want them to fit into, like birth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that they sort of, they continue to be transgressive even when people try to uh, force them into line. Yes, awesome. Um, But yeah, so I would say, so that's sort of our genitalia for today. 
um, the reminder of the ways in which these okay. things have existed, but also, um, you know, yes, absolutely still, still exist. exist. That, like, these uh, symbols are still embraced by lots of different people today. Um, you know, yeah, it's uh, not often that something that started in the 11th century or so you look at the wikipedia page and it also mentions eve ensler yes. and judy chicago vagina monologues so you know yep and of course the dinner yes. party and uh judy chicago's yeah. George course, O'Keefe dinner party. and her flowers yep yes yeah yes which is actually yeah. another really interesting so, question of right the <laughs> like the lesbian gaze, right? There are all these possibilities, some of which mm-hmm. are absolutely not explicit, but might still be considered transgressive. Yeah, that mm-hmm. are possibilities for the past as well. Yeah, there's always... So I do remember hearing that, like, there is something inherently male about the gaze, right. like the eye of the camera, regardless of who is wielding it. So there's an interesting question often of how to right. uh, subvert that, which I feel like, that's a, probably a film theory yep. question. But if you were curious about how they did that in, like, the early, um, the, uh, Right. But of course, the there were no the actual ages, cameras. Go check out yeah. the Sheila Nagig. <laughs> yes. No cameras, but still probably plenty of yes. men with but gazes. But was it easier before there were actual cameras? So. I don't know. Um, I, there's a painting I love by no. Kent Monkman. We'll post a thing to it because I'm forgetting the actual title of the painting, but where Monkman's alter ego, Miss Chief, is painting um, this photographer, white photographer. Kent Monkman is two-spirit, uh, First Nation Cree Canadian, mm-hmm. and um, is painting this white photographer who clearly came out to the quote-unquote wilderness to take pictures and has been speared to this tree with arrows, pink-fletched arrows. Miss Chief has pink-fletched arrows. And um, next to the photographer who has an erect phallus, in fact, um, there is this broken camera, and Miss Chief is painting the photographer, who is spirit to the tree, kind of like St. Sebastian. And it, it's clearly a painting that comments on this exact idea, right? Monkman reclaiming the gaze via Miss Chief, mm-hmm. and of course the fact that Monkman is the one who painted this painting, but it is, of course, a painting. Yes. The painter also has a gaze, right? But different from the camera, right? The mm-hmm. camera, that sort of technology has been broken, and left lying next to the photographer. So yeah, there's an Monkman does also make films, right. but this anyway. is definite <laughs> Right. No, I mean like it's definitely worth also recalling, I think we've quoted on this program before that most of the women in the Met are yes. actually in the painting. Yeah, the gorilla girls. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Their commentary, right, that something like eighty five percent of the nudes in the modern section of the Met are yes. female, but only like 5% of the artists are female. And they just claim the yeah. modern section. And yeah. they don't mention the pre-modern. Right. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, as Terry Pratchett said, Urns, But yeah, um, Kent, Kent Monkman's work is definitely worth yes. checking out. These images, if you just scroll through them, are so... Yeah. Complicated. Like, there's so much going on in each of these Yeah, and Monkman takes images from well-known Western paintings and reframes them frequently um, Mm -hmm. in ways that are 
that absolutely reframe the gaze. I mean, that is very explicitly the point. Speaking of explicit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But definitely some of his work could be seen as okay. quote unquote obscene. So there we are. All right. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Full circle. Uh, this episode is already going to be a nightmare to edit. So yes. <laughs> we're going to leave it there. And pick it up next time. You can leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, special thanks to whoever left us a review calling us too woke. You're welcome. Um, and uh, you can check out our website. You can check out our Facebook page. Just Google Ask a Medievalist and you'll find various things. You can tweet us. You can send us questions. We might eventually answer them. It's possible. <laughs> anyway, until next time, keep washing your hands, get your booster shot, and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 